Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Unless we know someone who has gone through the process, the transition from incarceration back into society is something that a lot of us probably haven't spent too much time thinking about. Finding a place to live and getting stable employment are two of the most important pieces of the reentry puzzle. But assistance with mental health is also a great need. Later this hour, we'll talk with people who are in the process of reacclimating to society and people who have dedicated themselves to help. But first, the remarkable story of musician Peter One. He is Nashville Artist of the Month over at our sister station, WNXP. He's been enjoying a moment in the spotlight. There are some three decades after he found fame in West Africa. Here's a song from his latest album, Come Back to Me, that captures his blend of styles. There's nothing for you, dear Nothing for you to say Don't go home Don't go home Many times I said many times You decided to go Hate I never sound to me, but still, many times, many, many times, you decided to go. I had never found this if and I disagree. Hold your horses, brother, don't you go, don't you go. Can't you see things have changed? Things have changed. You, have changed. you have changed. You've been here for more than 20 years. Don't go home. Don't go home. Don't just That's the song Birds Go Die Out of Sight by Peter One. And yes, the other voice you hear there is Allison Russell. Now we've got Nashville Public Radio senior music writer Julie Height here to tell us more about this music and the artist behind it. Julie, welcome back. Thank you. Thank so, you. Good to be here always. So good to have you here. So people love a comeback story, particularly in this country. Tell me, what makes Peter One's journey so unique? I mean, really, when you think about a comeback story, usually it is a figure returning to a spotlight in front of an audience that already knows them. They're already familiar with them. But in the case of Peter One, the success that he had in the 80s was kind of confined to West Africa. I mean, he was he was working with with a duo there. That's where they had their success. So. Almost every tour date that he plays, every show that he plays, every appearance he makes on TV now, he's introducing himself to an audience in the U.S. and the U.K. that's meeting him for the first 
time. So it's kind of exciting to to see that happen for an artist who also is very much a seasoned performer already, mm-hmm. and he carries that with him. It's a very familiar thing for musicians and songwriters to have side hustles. But, you know, you found something different about the work Peter One has been doing outside of the music. Tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, we have all these sayings, especially in Nashville, but not exclusively in Nashville, about how, you know, anywhere you go, you might be served by a barista, a bartender, a waiter who is also a fantastic instrumentalist or Mm. just a, a, a phenomenal songwriter that's kind of supplementing their music career, you know, until they reach a certain point. Um, and that's it's the idea that, that they would do something that is not so demanding that it interferes with their music. But for him, he chose nursing, which is okay. an incredibly, incredibly demanding career. And from his perspective, he said, you know, here's here's something where I can choose my schedule. I can work the night shift, you know, and I can work wherever I want in the U.S. because nurses are in demand everywhere. I just thought that was a a very unique way to look at it. And also for him, he, you know, he looks at it as a line of work that puts him in touch with humanity and what people are dealing with, Mm. you know, in very intimate ways. So it fosters empathy that he can use in his songwriting. Now, recently you visited Peter One backstage at the Grand Ole Opry on the day he made his debut on the show. And when the Opry announcer introduced him that night, he spelled out exactly how many miles it is from rural Ivory Coast, the rural Ivory Coast town that he grew up in, to the Opry stage here in Nashville. But, you know, his journey to get here is more than just about this geographical distance, right? That's true. It's not like he just covered all of that distance in one trip on a plane or on a boat or something something like that. I mean, as we were kind of mentioning earlier, I mean, he grew up in in the Ivory Coast in that town and he, you know, that was an area where a lot of people worked as pineapple farmers and they were multilingual. They were speaking French, which is, you know, the language that the colonial language the colonizers brought. They were speaking English and also their local tribal languages and he got a guitar and he moved to the city for college, brought it with him. And found this performing partner, Jess Sabi, and they, you know, they began to get success together and they got to to do TV and radio and, mm-hmm. you know, to play to arena size audiences in this in the surrounding countries. But I mean, he was looking to to do more than that to advance in music because it was kind of difficult to navigate the music industry in Ivory Coast. And so he came to the U.S. to learn more, to get gear. I mean, literally to get recording gear that he didn't have access to. And then after he got here, the situation, you know, the civil war that was that was already raging in Ivory Coast was getting worse and worse. And it was more dangerous. It would have been more dangerous for him to return. Mm. So that was kind of the beginning of a new phase of life, building a life in the U.S. And that's where where nursing came in. And he lived in various places, but eventually in Nashville. Even though Nashville is currently Peter One's home base, I understand he didn't always have his sights set on following the lead of country music, of the country music industry here. And it wasn't like he was desperate to break into it. 
What stands out to you about his relationship with country music? Yeah, I think that's that's very important to note that that wasn't that wasn't the thing he was envisioning when he was 20 years old or something like that. I mean, you know, we think of Nashville as the center of the universe when it comes to country music and the place that any artist would ultimately want to to get to, but he reminds us that there are other perspectives on that other experiences. His perspective is such a richly global one because when he was growing up he was taking in local sounds and traditions and innovations and regional ones he was listening to troubadours from neighboring countries and high life and afro pop and you know taking in a lot of different approaches to songwriting and and rhythm and he was also taking in stuff that came to him through the radio or through recordings that was from all across the world and particularly, you know, the U.S. and the U.K. that he recognized as sounds that, you know, had had been transported just across the African diaspora, Mm. you know, and then had been were filtering back in. He was taking them back in and he was making all these connections all, all this music that spoke to him, he was the one that was kind of steering his path of musical discovery. You know, it wasn't like someone told him, this is the way to go. I'm going to connect the dots for you. And so he eventually, after he'd begun finding his sound and putting it out there, it was other people who were hearing it, writing about it, marketing it that said, you're making country music, you know? So he, he saw the usefulness in just taking that and running with it since it was a familiar category, but he found his way there differently. And he told me about that. Let's take, let's listen to a clip. The Ivory Coast is French former colony. And it's one of the most open country in Africa, open to all kind of cultures, open to all kind of music. I can say there's also something inside me that had resonated with country music, because among all this diversity of music, when I heard the boxer from Simon Garfunkel the first time, it did touch me right there. Of course, I've been influenced, but... There's probably something deep inside myself, my own inner nature, that has a preference for this kind of stuff. See, there there you go, right mm-hmm. there. I mean, he was talking about Simon and Garfunkel, just as one example, but but that inner process of listening to the things that appealed to him and connecting the dots creatively for himself. What did Peter One tell you about getting his musical vision across on this new album? I mean, he said that he he felt very lucky to find these Nashville musicians who were open minded and excited about working with him. But on the on the other hand, there were there were some songs that he brought to the table and they started working up arrangements and they didn't necessarily get the feel that he was looking for right off the bat. So there were there were some cases where he wound up sort of gently steering, particularly the rhythm section, you know, mm-hmm. the bass lines, the drum patterns, the percussion parts to get the really intricate, delicate, sophisticated, you know, all the elements that are part of what he wants to do. He's bringing so many things together that people aren't used to necessarily hearing together. And he told me that one example of him doing that and in, in working with these musicians for this album was a song called Cherie Vico.
intricate layers coming together and you know the the rhythms that he uh, worked with the, the musicians to to achieve right there it's a great a great example of how delicate and intricate and nimble his style is and smooth at that Julie Height is senior music writer for Nashville Public Radio her profile of Peter One the WNXP artist of the month will be hitting airwaves later this month you can find ongoing coverage of his music at WNXP.org Julie as always thank you so much for being here thanks for having me yeah we have to take a short break when we come back we'll talk with two people who've been reacclimating to society after incarceration we'll learn what the process has been like for them and others are you returning do you know someone who is join the conversation by tweeting us at this is nashville we'll be right back Kaliole Colonna, and this is Nashville. Returning to society after spending years or even decades in prison can be an incredibly difficult task. People looking to re-enter the larger society need support. Yes, some may have family and friends who are there for them, but do they really understand what formerly incarcerated people have gone through? Do people have the time and patience to help folks get on their feet, in some cases, for the first time? What is it like for people who are on that journey of reentry after spending time in prison? My next guests are here to share some of their stories. I'd like to introduce Chantel Kimball and Cedric Booker to This Is Nashville. Chantel, Cedric, thanks for being here. Welcome. Thank to you. the show. Thank, Thank you for you having me. Now, Chantel, you've been out of prison for two years. What has it been like for you getting readjusted to life? Um, I wouldn't say that it was the most difficult thing that um, I've ever done, but it definitely was a different set of challenges coming home. Um, housing being one of the main things that was the biggest hurdle coming home because they they really didn't, Nashville really didn't have anything geared toward women that were coming home without a background of prostitution or addiction. Mm. So um, the halfway houses were geared toward women that dealt with those demons, whereas someone like me felt that I fell between the cracks. Can you, can you give us a sense of what life is like for you right now? It's way better than mm-hmm. when I first came home, but um, I'm, I'm contending the movements that I'm making now. Um, I'm being able to reach back out to a community that literally has um, voices that are stifled 
by the system. So now you said it's way better than when you first got out. Take us back to that moment when you were released. What did you need most when you got out? I most definitely needed I needed all the resources, every resource that you could think of. A, a person that's coming home doesn't have just one thing or a couple of things they need. They need everything. So when somebody says, hey, reach out if you need something or let me know what you need, it's kind of hard to narrow that down when you're just coming home because mm. you need so many things. You need everything. So all of the resources is what I need. Now, now Cedric, you spent more than two decades in prison. It's a long time. Yes. What, what were the biggest challenges that you faced after you got out and you were trying to get on your feet? So, as you said, um, I spent actually 25 and a half years incarcerated. And so when I left the street, I left the street barely. A, I wasn't really even, I hadn't reached the age of majority. In other words, I wasn't old enough to do what 21-year-olds can do. Wow. And so returning to the street and now being 46 years old, having lost the opportunity to go through all those natural processes of growth and development, what I found to be the most challenging thing was being able to mentally even see myself as a part of the community. Mm. Because so much of what I had invested in over the last 25 years was just being able to survive in what's a very unnormal circumstance. And so because I had become so acclimated to living in the institutions, because I had become so acclimated to what prison life was, coming into the world, it felt like, okay, I've read, I've studied, I've tried to educate myself and keep up as much as I could. However, there are things you can't replicate. Mm -hmm. There are things that I really wasn't able to prepare for. And so getting out and just having a basic conversation or even engaging with someone without necessarily feeling like I had to defend or explain why there was this tremendous gap in my social cultural awareness was nearly debilitating. And so what I found to be the most important thing for me was finding avenues to address mental health. While I was incarcerated, I witnessed a lot of people experience mental health issues without necessarily having the help that they needed. And so returning to society, even though I didn't have any type of diagnosis or anything like that. I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't what you would call uh, disturbed, mm -hmm. put it that way. But I knew, being very honest with myself, that my entire way of thinking was going to have to change. And so I definitely took advantage of reaching out to some of the uh, resources that were available. I contacted Centerstone. That's one of the facilities that does mental health counseling, will provide you with that treatment. And I was able to get set up with someone who I'm able to talk to on a regular basis just to help me continue to make my adjustment. Housing, employment, all of those were issues that were necessary for me to deal with and address. I was thankful I did have family and friends who helped me. But being able to address the mental health issue of being able to find my place in society now was imperative. And that was the first thing I focused on. Now, Chantal, I see you nodding in agreement. Did you have a similar challenge? Most definitely the mental health. Um, I was diagnosed with bipolar depression, um, two, type two, when I was 19 years old. And I was incarcerated when I was 22. 
So coming home, um, being that I've never been to prison or jail before, having to readjust to society and dealing with crowded areas, loud noises, um, sudden movements, just dealing with all of those things at one time was not something that I had grown accustomed to, especially being gone for five and a half years. So, so it was, the, it was the, the stimuli of being out in the world, yes. which was incredibly troubling. Yes. yes, I'm sure you both, you know, you have a, you want to have a stable, stable and safe place to live. What's been challenging for you? Chantel, you first. What's been challenging about finding housing? So um, the affordability of housing, the affordability and um, the background as far as people checking my background, running my backgrounds for housing, always getting turned down. So the affordability and the um, availability to people like me coming from incarceration. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking this hour about the difficult path of re-entering society after spending time in prison. Tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. Now, again, I'd like to hear from you both on this next question. I'm really curious, how did the prison you were in, how did that help prepare you to re-enter society? Cedric? So while I was incarcerated, I was, of course, in several prisons in Tennessee. Um, and each institution is its own world. But two of the institutions that impacted me the most were, one, River Bend in Nashville. At one time, River Bend had a very therapeutic culture. There were lots of outside volunteers who came in and offered programs like meditating, uh, yoga, things that you wouldn't even think about in prison. Mm -hmm. But they offered those things to guys who were interested. And those of us who took advantage of it were able to tap into, you know, tools to help us to 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 focus and to thrive. One of the other things uh, was at Morgan County, I was able to actually get involved in work release. And so work release prepared me for life after prison because I had the opportunity to go outside every day and work. So for about seven and a half years, I was able to reacclimate to being in the free world mm -hmm. because each day I got up, I went out, I would dress in regular free world clothes, would work at my job. At the end of the day, they'd take me back to the prison. But having that time each day worked kind of like having a, a daily furlough. They gave me an opportunity to get adjusted to people's attitudes, some of the things that I was going to have to deal with eventually anyway. And so I have to admit that that helped me tremendously. Mm -hmm. So... Being able to get out on work release, save some money, get acclimated to the environment outside and beyond prison walls, all of those things helped me. And yet there still was nothing that could prepare me for the shock of coming back to Nashville, Tennessee in 2022 after having left in 1997. The way this city has changed, the way the infrastructure has shifted, the cultural and ethnic diversity of this area now is just so overwhelming. And yet it's, it's what it is. I mean, this is our current new. This is our new normal. And so it's an adjustment for all of us, I'm sure. But coming back from prison, even more so. Chantel, did you, did you have a similar, similar experience? I actually took a class called group therapy. Um, I That was the one class that helped shift my entire focus during incarceration. Um, I learned that the word no is a full sentence. I don't have to explain to anyone if I don't want to do something or I see that something is not benefiting to me, I can tell someone no and not have to worry about, you know, making them feel bad or sacrificing my own comfort for theirs. Um, but Tennessee Prison for Women is where I spent most of my time. I went to 
um, WTRC in West Tennessee and Henning for a brief moment, but most of my time was at TPW and I was able to pursue my associate's degree, started my associate's degree. And I came home and finished that degree. And that's one thing that I'm I'm most proud of because I can I took that to my mom and I told her, you know, at least now you have two daughters that are college graduates. Mm-hmm. Whereas I was the youngest, you know, I I was successful when I was younger, but when I got older I made decisions that I paid my consequences for and now that I'm able to give my mom a degree to say, hey, you know, this is what I accomplished while I was away. While, you know, some people, not everybody that gets incarcerated is thinking about coming home, even if they know they've got an out day soon. Mm-hmm. Not everybody focuses on the next steps to help them improve themselves when they come home. So um, getting the degree and taking group therapy was most definitely um beneficial to me while I was away. You know, even with the preparation you received, did you feel like it was enough, Cedric? I really, initially I did, you know, for years I had built up this wall and a shell for myself where I really knew I had to have a level of confidence when I got out mm-hmm. that I would be able to res- resist all of the challenges because I understood no one necessarily owes me sympathy. They don't owe me compassion. And so I had really steeled myself to be ready for a world where nobody cared and I just had to be ready to stand on my own two feet and do it right. And I was thinking that I was really prepared. And then I got out and couldn't even order food in a restaurant because I wasn't familiar with this kiosk technology. Mm-hmm. To go into a store, and I'm like, how do I how do, I do it? Because I wasn't set up for this new high-tech economy. And things that people take for granted, like when I left, people check you out at the store. Now they want you to check yourself out. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wait a minute. So... I got to check myself out. Those things were challenging for me. And as I referred to earlier about mental health, it it affected my confidence because I thought, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm a smart guy. I mean, I've read all of them books. I've studied. You know, I, I took some correspondence courses while I was incarcerated. I, I mean, I, I, I can do this, right? But yet here I was having to have this internal self-dialogue where I'm trying to coach myself up because, unfortunately, I just could not have There was no way to prepare for what was out here, and here's why. Prisons are designed to stifle you, not only incapacitate you physically, but they also incapacitate you mentally. And so prisons, the way that they're run right now in our society, are designed to keep you as ignorant as they can. Mm. They don't want you to be techno-literate. They want to keep you as techno-illiterate as possible. And so, honestly, there was nothing to prepare me for the world as it is now because the prison considers a security threat for me to— study or to understand certain things. And so here I am coming from a world where I'm still on dial-up, to use an analogy. I'm still at dial-up, and the world's on 5G. Mm. And they're saying, just deal with it. Yeah, and then enter out into the world and you'll be fine. But, you know, a lot of people don't even think about the effect of prison time on a person. Chantel, reflect on how that time affected you and changed you. So um, speaking to what um, you had asked Mr. Cedric also in the beginning about how whether or not the prisons set you up for coming home on release, um, unfortunately, my prison didn't. TBW did not prepare me for coming home at all. 
um, when I came home, I went to a restaurant and had a mini meltdown, you know, because there were people around me. I was not used to that many people being crowded in a in a space at Monell's. And I'm, mm. I'm not sure if everybody knows how Monell's is set up, but it's a family style dining in situation where there's at least 10, ta- 10 chairs to a table. And they fill up those entire tables, even if it's with strangers, people mm-hmm. that you didn't come with. So when I when I went to that restaurant and sat down to eat, I I literally had a breakdown. I can't remember exactly everything that happened, but I know I found myself in the restroom splashing water on my face, crying, trying to bring myself together. And this was just a few weeks after me coming home. But, um, you know, the the prison atmosphere like he said, it stifles it stifles growth, any type of growth, intellectual, physical, ev- everything, uh, maturity. It 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 did not prepare me for coming home, and those challenges I still deal with today because my mental health is affected from the shakedowns, the run-ins, the strip searches, the the overdoses I've seen. I've seen a handful of people pass away that I knew were supposed to come home. Mm-hmm. I saw them die behind prison walls, whether it was the neglect of staff or it was some medical issue or whatever. So I have to carry those things with me now on a daily basis. You know, you know you've changed, but sometimes people side with stigmas. I'm really curious about your interactions with people and like what they're like when they discover that you've spent time behind bars. So I remember uh, when I first came home, I went to church and I ended up giving my testimony um, during service. And I remember my grandmother being like, no, you didn't. You really told them you went to prison. You said that in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. And it just reminded me of the stigma that you speak of, because at first I'm thinking, well, it's the it's the 21st century. You know, just about everybody has some type of a background. Maybe it's not that I, I wouldn't be uh, stigmatized that bad. But after hearing my grandmother be shocked because I told someone I, I gave my testimony in church, I'm like, you know, it's at church. It wasn't like I stood up in the middle of the street and yelled, I've been to prison and now I've come home. I'm I'm giving my testimony. So, um, you know, to 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 be honest, I don't tell too many people unless unless they're asking, unless it's a forum like this. But, um, you know, the people that I have told, I've been welcomed with nothing but love and open arms. What challenges does that bring to relationships, though? <sighs> I mean, it's 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 kind of like hiding a secret. It's 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 something that um, you don't want to be judged on, but at the same time, too, you don't you don't want to lie to someone. You don't want to lead them on. You don't want you know you don't want to hurt anybody um, because of your background. Them looking at you different. Them judging you. You know. So I just I don't talk about it too. Much. I don't go around saying that I'm you know a felon or whatever ex felon. Hate using that term, but um, I don't do that. So I don't really suffer too many of the consequences that come with telling someone besides jobs. Jobs Mm -hmm. are the only one that, you know, just they hold my past against me. So now that you're out and you're building your life again, what are you planning for the future, for your future? So I know that my life is dedicated to service. I knew that I found that out February 2018 when I got denied for parole for the second time, second or third time. Um, I was supposed to live, I'm supposed to live a life of service. And so that's my ultimate goal is to be able to give back to 
not just communities of low impoverished, you know, children and families, but people who have went to prison, done their time and come home. They've paid the consequences for their actions and they're making proactive steps to uh, be active members of society and law abiding citizens. I, I feel like that's my calling to give back to them. That is Chantel Kimball. Thank you again for joining us and thank you for sharing your story. Best of luck to you. Thank you. Cedric Booker will stick with us through the break. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about some of the programs and resources that are available to assist people reentering society after incarceration. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. The process of readjusting to society after prison time is a difficult process that also comes with a lot of stigma. Returning folks need housing and steady employment, but they also need emotional and mental health support. So what are the organizations that are seeking to provide that help? And who are the folks willing to take the time to help? My next guests are two such folks. I'd like to introduce Risha Kidd, case manager with the Tennessee Prison Outreach Ministry and Reentry Center. She's joined by Rico X, CEO of Project Return. Risha, Rico, thank you for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You know, Risha, tell us, tell us more about how the Tennessee Prison Outreach Ministry helps people who are returning from prison. Yes, we are. We have been providing our services for over 50 years. Um, we have housing for men and women. We have two houses for our men. One is located in Nashville, Tennessee. The other is located in Memphis, Tennessee, which just opened last year. We also have a women's house in Nashville. Each house holds 16 residents. Um, with that not just housing, we also provide programming. So programming looks like workforce development, uh, clinical services, so for therapy, case management, spiritual direction, and mentorship, financial literacy, um, budgeting class, budgeting classes, and things of that nature. So we're, we're tending to the whole person. So um, we're working on those who are returning from incarceration, but we're also reaching back and helping their children. So in your role, you make sure that folks get the basics, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So what that really looks like is making sure when they come in with us, they have their identification because a lot of the men and women who are coming out of prison have no form of ID when they're coming out. And that could set them up to recidivate, right? Mm -hmm. If they're caught by a uh, uh, parole officer or um, law enforcement and they have no forms of ID, that could be a tag on them. Um, so we're making sure they have their ID. We're making sure they have forms of identification. We're making sure they have their mental health set up if they come in with a presenting diagnosis. Um, we're making sure that they have uh, physical, their physical health needs are met. They're having clothing. They have clothing. They have food. So we're making sure their foundation is set even before they start work. Why is it important to make sure that their mental and medical needs are met? when they're released. I feel that is so, it's basic. Um, we have a lot of men and women who are coming out of prison who were taking meds on the inside, and then when they come out, when they're released, it's not in their property. Mm -hmm. 
So you have people coming out who have been in institutionalized for so long and have been in this system, and then they're coming out to the free world. And like um, the the other. Um, interviewees were talking about the anxiety, the pressures of seeing drugs everywhere. If you get on the bus station, if you go to the bus stop, so you're coming out with these meds that you've been on for so long, and now they're just sending you out without any at all, which could cause somebody to relapse, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that that is why it is so important that we're making sure that those who do have diagnoses and that they are on medication, we're making sure it's not going without one or two days before we're getting them seen by a mental health provi provider or any diagnosis that they may have. Mm -hmm. Now, now, Rico, tell me, what's the focus with Project Return? Yeah, so Project Return, our primary focus is around employment. And uh, certainly we, we know that... Um, employment or lack thereof, underemployment is the number one driver for someone that uh, may potentially recidivate and uh, go back in. And so that is our primary focus. Uh, but in addition to that, we do make sure that we provide those wraparound services. So in addition to someone uh, being connected to a job, we make sure that they uh, have bus passes or transportation. In some cases, we um, have van, we have a fleet of vans that take our participants directly to their jobs because we know transportation is a barrier. Mm -hmm. There are uh, also, uh, we have partnerships with uh, local food banks where we're able to, you know, help to provide uh, food bags and, and different things of that nature because we know that there's food insecurity. We uh, also make sure that there are connections that are made to other mental health services. So whereas our primary focus is, is in the realm of employment, we also just make sure that there are um, those deeper connections that people are able to have. Uh, we, have we also have a, a small, uh, uh, we have about 32 units of affordable housing for those that uh, qualify because we also know that housing is a serious barrier. So I think for Project Return, it's also just making sure that we see that we see the humanity and we see the different challenges and barriers that uh, each individual has. And we work directly with them to make sure that they are able to mitigate some of those barriers that they encounter. Tell me this. How, how do you approach employers who may be a little hesitant to hire someone who spent some time in state prison? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. I think one one thing is before we go through the process of uh, placement or making referrals and things of that nature, they uh, our participants have to do a job readiness course with us. And so in that job readiness, there's uh, just basic things in terms of you know how to do the search. There's uh, some computer computer literacy that happens with that financial literacy, but also job retention. And even even just from the perspective of uh, helping our participants address that elephant in the room, which is how do I talk about my background with a prospective employer? That's a mm. huge hurdle that uh, that people have to overcome. So really walking that walking that line with them and helping to support them in that. But um, we, we have a couple of ways in which we do that. One is that we have a program called uh, PRO-E, which stands for Project Return. Uh, opportunities for employment. And so what we do is we we provide, uh, we, we basically take on the fiscal responsibility. And so we pay our participants to be placed at essentially kind of a, a, a high quality uh, uh, temporary staff staffing agency. And so mm -hmm. we have a number of different business uh, partners that are, are willing to take our referrals. 
And uh, but we we pay our participants directly, and then uh, chances are within that, within that ninety day period, those participants have an opportunity for long term employment with that particular agency. And in many respect, in many in many cases, they are able to uh, you know find long term employment with those entities. But that is a hurdle, I, I, I definitely. But there was a there was a study that was done late last year through the uh, Society for uh, Human Resource Management. And they said that 72% of what they call second chance hires are actually just as good, if not better, than traditional hires in terms of job retention. Mm-hmm. So what that says to me is that, that that there are individuals who really are hungry for that second chance, that second opportunity, and they're going to do everything possible to uh, to make sure that they take advantage of of that employment opportunity. And so I think that we still have a lot more work to do when it comes to helping employers, uh, you know, create a different narrative and understanding about, uh, you know, justice involved individuals. Cedric Booker is still with us. Cedric, thanks again for for being here. Now, you've, you. you've been working with Raheem Buford of Unheard Voices Outreach, who wasn't able to join us today, unfortunately. But, you know, tell me about the work that you two are doing. So the importance of the work that has been done through UVO, and that's Unheard Voices Outreach, is that someone had to be able to really speak from the perspective of the individual in need of the aid and assistance. A lot of times what we experience is that coming out, there are people who, for all of their good intentions, they want to help, but they don't necessarily understand that we're all adults. Mm. People coming out of the criminal justice system are adults. And so while there are people who may have been in since they were juveniles and who really didn't learn how to make adult decisions well, they still have that ability to do so. And so what we had to do is be able to to speak for people by being able to also listen. And so what Unheard Voices has done is created a conduit, a conduit, excuse me, to be able to open up a bridge of communication where we can actually address the needs of the people coming out by having someone who's speaking for and advocating for people coming out who's been there. There's not, there aren't many people that I've met who've done as much time as I did. I've, I've met people who went in the system and did some time and came out. They did it on installment plan. There were those who went in, did a few years, came out, went in on parole, that revolving door. But the individuals who've actually spent decades consistently, day for day behind walls, experience a type of life that you can't tell anybody about. I can't tell you in 25 minutes what I experienced in 25 years. It's just impossible. Yeah. And so to try to condense and 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 prioritize the the facts of my existence in a way that's going to be relevant to you as much as you or anyone may have an open heart of compassion and the willingness to listen. No one is able to really understand because they hadn't gone through it. Well, tell me this. What does it mean to you to connect with someone who has also been incarcerated, someone who understands? It's extremely important. That's why one of the projects that we've started working on recently is called uh, Bridges to Freedom. Bridges to Freedom is about creating a second chance society, actually establishing infrastructure that, that allows us to begin to put people who've been in the system in contact with others, as well as individuals in the community who want to help and create an entire new culture that understands and addresses the needs of those who are justice involved in the most organic way.
If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Kalona. We're talking this hour about the resources to help people making the transition from being incarcerated to re-entering society with Risha Kidd, Rico X, and Cedric Booker. Tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. Now, you know, Risha, tell me, how do how do programs like yours, how do they make a difference in someone's life where they remove themselves from the cycle of recidivism? So I think about one of our residents who just recently graduated, and um, he went in around the age of 17 and came out, was released from incarceration around the age he was 32. So spending those, I would say, adolescent years into adult life in prison and coming out and having to learn life um, in an adult way, but still being in a mentality of somewhat of an adolescent. Um, coming to our program, it was a lot of additional support. Um, the, the thing I absolutely love about T-Palm, some of our staff members have also spent time on the inside. Um, one of our um, staff members is a lifer. The other um, spent over, over five years incarcerated. So actually having staff there to support, but staff that understands because they've been on the other side was very impactful. That also looked like um, pairing this this um, individual with a job and uh, the encouragement and the support and being there, having a listening ear. Sometimes it's not always having the answers, but it's just being there to listen mm. and that support. Um, and seeing this individual go from uh, being a team member to a team lead in a supervisory role to obtaining um, his degree from college, his bachelor's degree in college and moving forward. Um, but also being there after the graduation process and understanding the hardships of being an ex-felon and making having all this all these accomplishments, but still that stigma when you get out of this safe space, the safe space of T-Palm, the safe space of Project Return and being denied for housing because of the past. But they're not looking at all the accomplishments they've made since they've been out. Now, now Rico, your organization, Project Return, focuses on employment. But what are some of the gaps that you still see for people who are returning from prison? Yeah, there's just a tremendous amount of uh, different gaps that we see. As I said before, there's, uh, you know, food insecurity in some cases. In some cases, it might even be just uh, literacy. Uh, in, in other aspects, it may be housing. Uh, there may be mental health in terms of m mental health as well as uh, uh, physical health in terms of just uh, prescriptions and things of that nature. So I think it's it's uh, for us when we when we when you think about something such as the word equity, equity is really about meeting people where they are to get them what they need mm -hmm. to be successful. That doesn't that's not equality. That's not it's mm -hmm. not the same for everyone. So so we're, for someone that may uh, may even have like a college background, like literacy may not necessarily be their hurdle. It may just be employment. But for someone else, you know, for someone else that it's it, they they've uh, had kind of a checkered background and and uh, in and out of school like that literacy component might be a, might be a, a uh, thing that they are encountering. So I think that for us, it is uh, making sure that we're really assessing the 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 complexities and the fullness of what they need and making sure that we kind of connect them to the resources that they need to be successful. I think that. 
when it's all said and done, people are just looking for an opportunity mm -hmm. of some sort. And, and in particular, an opportunity to, uh, to, to make sure that they are not defined by, in some cases, maybe the worst decision that they made in their life. But that, that's the stigma that goes along with this. And, you know, some of that is reinforced through policy. And the state, Tennessee, has one of the highest recidivism rates in the country. Risha, Risha tell me, what, like, what type of policies can be changed or added that would help lower the rate and assist people in getting back into society? Um, I think about um, the policy as far as in <laughs> right now, there's policies talking about getting rid of good time um, where <laughs> um, you have people on the inside who are incarcerated, who are uh, truly being rehabilitated while they're on the inside, taking their classes and things of, of that nature and passing and truly progressing. But now we're talking about as a state taking away good time and making individuals serve their full sentence. Mm -hmm. That is not that's not helping that it's not helping you are continuing to dehumanize these individuals. But only that not only that. Staffing in the prisons. You don't have enough staffing. Now we, now you look at not having enough teachers and instructors coming in. Um, so it's it's go we're going backwards. We're going backwards. And to be honest, I call it modern-day slavery. Now, Cedric, you know, we have a minute left. You tell me, what do you want people out there to know about folks who are returning to society after spending time incarcerated? The most important thing in 2023 that we have to focus on is how do we as a society recognize ourselves in the modern world and how do we reimagine what it means to operate corrections? Because if we've built corrections on this draconian idea of what used to be chattel slavery, and that's a whole nother conversation, mm -hmm. we have to reimagine first and foremost what it means to get away from that 13th Amendment exception that allows people to be placed in this indentured servitude because of crime. We have to get away from that and reimagine that prisons can be a place of, of restoration. They can be a place of rehabilitation. They can be a place where people are able to grow and develop. But we have to get society on board that it's okay to address and help people at that level. And that's the, that's the challenge moving forward. And we're just going to keep working on that, along with organizations like T-Farm, Project Return, because it's what we have to do. That is Cedric Booker. He was joined by Risha Kidd with Tennessee Prison Outreach Ministry and Rico X of Project Return. I want to thank you all for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank, thank you. you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Steve Harouche. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Raheem Buford, Kelsey Hall, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The conversation doesn't end here. Just tweet us at This Is Nashville. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Kaliole Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.